note from uh, the bulletin, we'll be turning to the prophet Obadiah uh, for our reflection this morning that occurs in the so-called Minor Prophets, the book of the 12th, uh, in the prophetic section of your Bible right after Amos. Uh, If you want to find that, uh, you're welcome to follow along with me as I read uh, this shortest of all books in the Bible. And uh, we'll be reading all 21 verses, and this will be uh, the focus of our meditation uh, this morning on God's Word. This is God's very Word. Please give uh, careful attention to it, and please rise if you're able, and respect and honor to God's Word. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a message has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, Though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will tear you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by the slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. And on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered into his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune, Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of the distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations, and all you have done, it shall be done to you, and your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, it shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. 
The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. Those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim. And the land of Samaria and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, Harin, Seraphad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That's the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our understanding. You may be seated. Before I enter in the prayer of illumination, I know your bulletin says stand, but just stay seated. <laughs> so this is the awkwardness of visiting congregations and not always being accustomed to their liturgy. But I have two goals this morning for you that you would be consoled by God's word. Uh, you may be waiting with anticipation, why Obadiah? But Obadiah has a very important message for us today. But also a minor goal is to also teach you how to read all the prophetic words in the Bible. So if you listen closely and pay attention, I hope to give you principles that you can apply to your own private reading and other sections of the prophets. But before we do that, we need to ask God that he would open our hearts so we might understand his word. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, we plead with you once again that you would grant that posture without which no one can understand truth, especially from your holy word. Namely, that we might have reverence and humility before it and listen as if you yourself were speaking to us insofar as my words comport with yours. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Uh, three points, all beginning with I. For those of you taking notes, or maybe as an aid to memory, introduction, interpretation, and inspiration. Introduction, interpretation, and inspiration. So first, by way of introduction, George Orwell, you know him as the famous author of the novel 1984, once wrote the following. The further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. The further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. And how true this is proving to be in our own day and age, is it not? It's becoming obvious in many ways, perhaps nowhere more conspicuous evidence than in the sexual revolution that has been happening in the last four decades, not only in North America, but around the world. And why is this topic important to single out? Because sexual values represented in a people are definitive of cultures. They give us an insight or an index into culture itself. 
As Carl Truman has cataloged in his recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, quote, criticism of homosexuality is now homophobia. That of transgenderism is now transphobia. And the use of the term phobia is deliberate and effectively places such criticism of the new sexual culture into the realm of the irrational and points toward an underlying bigotry on the part of those who hold such views, close quote. And then a little farther, he continues, to be sexually inactive in the mindset of the world is to be a less than whole person, to be obviously unfulfilled or weird, the old sexual codes of celibacy outside marriage and chastity within it are considered ridiculous and oppressive and their advocates wicked or stupid or both. The sexual revolution is truly a revolution in that it has turned the moral world upside down. Now, as I mentioned, the Obadiah is the shortest book in the Hebrew Bible with only 291 Hebrew words. And yet, just as little words can be huge conveyors of meaning, as we all know in our personal relationships, so also can this little book of Obadiah, even though it's assigned in God's canon to be the shortest book in the Bible. So by way of introduction, who is Edom, ultimately, is a question. For a major theme in the book is judgment. Judgment on Edom in particular. Edom was that nation that Israel would look across the Dead Sea at, elevated up on relatively high mount. But What I want you to hear first and foremost is that Edom functions as a kind of symbol for all other nations that hate God's people. Edom's hatred of God's people has turned bestial. However, Edom's actions and behavior and future judgment are like a model for all other nations because even though Nations and civil kingdoms are legitimate under God's control. They can easily incline towards turning bestial and be hateful of God's people. And that's what we see described here. Edom, that geographically elevated nation that they glanced across to the east, who although their former kinsmen, now were gloating victoriously over God's people in their most severe trials. Edom, that nation through which the so-called superhighway, the king's highway, went, that had in their pride and hubris refused safe passage to Israel in a former age, would now, according to Obadiah, what we just read, see the homecoming of Balaam's prophecy previously uttered in Numbers 24:18. Edom shall be dispossessed. I repeat, because you must get this point to understand how God's word applies to you. This morning, Edom, according to John Calvin and many others, is a symbol of any nation or culture that turns against God's people with hatred. Therefore, the prophecy of Obadiah has real meaning for the people right now in this space and this time especially those who stand fast for the truth and authority of God's word. Now, why is this? As one author says, we have entered into an age of canon crisis. 
Let me explain. In other words, it's not just outside the church. We, we would not naturally expect people outside the church to comport themselves and agree to the same kind of membership vows that those of you have agreed to with regards to the authority of God's word to rule your life and covenantal faith and practice. But as a matter of fact, even inside the church now, in many quarters of the church and among professing Christians, not just in North America but around the world, Many, many question the authority of the scriptures as a sufficient norm for their covenantal faith in life. (laughs) Arrogating to themselves the position, well, I know God may say X and Y are wrong, but I disagree with God saying X and Y, and therefore my opinion on this is that I'll go ahead and do X and Y anyway. We are in a canon crisis in the church with the understanding of God's authority over the lives of his children. Many areas in our culture could be appealed to even now as political battles rage. The issues surrounding abortion have come front and center in recent months. The so-called reproductive rights over and against the rights of the unborn are part of everyday discourse now. Perhaps this is most clearly seen in the huge cultural shift I mentioned earlier in the sexual revolution of the last 60 years, which are merely an index of the radical transformation in the perception of self. Pause and think. Even in our BCO, which I have up here, which we as authors in the church agreed to submit to as our tertiary standards, we call them, have recommendations, suggested forms for a wedding service. That the purpose for which God designed marriage is the enrichment, and I quote, of the lives of those who enter into this estate for the orderly propagation of the human race, for the generation of a holy seed, that is, children, and for the avoidance of sexual immorality, all to the glory of our covenantal Lord. But if you rub shoulders with those outside the church, which I'm thankful that in this church so many of you do and make efforts to do that, you know that in the eyes of much of the world, this is now viewed as antiquated at best, abusive and oppressive even by those who hold to it, and perhaps, to quote Truman again, ridiculous and even a sign of serious mental or moral deficiency, close quote. And so now the hatred of the Edomites can be compared to the growing hatred of Christians in our own day by cultures that have turned bestial and hateful towards those who expound and stand for the truth. The date. With regards to the exact date of Obadiah, we just do not know. The Talmud, the Jewish writings that go along with their Hebrew Bible, some of them, Thought it was very early. Many scholars think that it had to do with the events surrounding the fall of Jerusalem in 587. But we don't know for sure. But it's sufficient to know that the main message is still evidently clear. 
Namely, that the Israelites might rest assured that the Edomites, their enemies now, though their kinsmen formerly, though they may prosper for a time, in due time, they cannot escape the hand of God. And they will be constrained to give an account of their cruelty against God's people. The structure of the book, if you follow along, is easily enough seen. Verses 2 to 4 can be seen as the first condemnation of Edom, this hateful nation. Its foolishness, its self-deluding reliance upon its own terrain. There is the message of indictment. You thought you were safe, high up in the mountains, verse 5 to 7, deeply protected in your own lofty abodes. Not so. 5 to 7 actually shifts to a second condemnation of Edom. It's foolishness for demonstrating reliance on human allies and other nations. All performing, to use John Updike's term, the acrobatics of deception. Calvin said they're like one who lays in bed with a knife just waiting for the partner and then the stab comes. Unawares. Verses 8 to 15 are about the judgment over Edom. Two days of destruction, Edom and the nations other than Israel, and 10 to 14 give the reasons for Edom's destruction. And then if you let your eyes glance at 15, the second half of verse 15 down to 18, it's all about the salvation of Zion and Israel after the monarchy and judgment over Edom and the nations. And verse 19 to 21 build up to a climax demonstrating the concluding note of the book with a particular image of and a divine promise for an ideal future of Christ and his church in the spread of the gospel. This section picks up the language, actually, of the book of Judges, verse 21. But if you get out this afternoon a map, and you begin to look at the territories that are identified, such geographical boundaries were never known in the days of the Jews. And therefore, that should signal to you that something much weightier, a vast sweep and scope is being described here that far outstripped anything that the original audience understood. Interestingly, in later Jewish tradition, some recognizing this point understood this passage to be very messianic. So now, having looked at those introductory issues, framing your minds correctly to understand a right interpretation of the book, let alone other prophetic books, let's turn to the issue of interpretation. Our interpretation of this prophecy and others as well should look for a triple reference whenever you're dealing with prophetic books. First of all, you should look to the original horizon, the historical horizon, insofar as it could be determined that the prophet was speaking to. But then you should look second to Christ, because the prophets are born up by the Spirit to speak about the age to come, and about Christ, maybe not merely his person, but his work, his kingdom, the church, his ascension. The preaching of the gospel throughout the whole world, and maybe even all the way down to the second advent, the final judgment. And the last day, the whole course of history up to the last day. These are the principles that can be observed in Calvin's exegesis of Obadiah, and observed by many others. And they should be yours 
and mine as well. See, Calvin, for example, would customarily remark after painstaking work in the text about understanding the prophet's intention. For example, after talking about the punishment of the Edomites in verses 7 to 8, he says, We now see the prophet's meaning. A little later, after commenting and exegeting, Shall I not in that day, saith God, destroy the wise from Edom? He pauses, and he says, We now then perceive the import of the words. Or 12 to 15, he says, We now understand the prophet's meaning. Now, this may not seem like such an arresting point to draw to your attention. But this biblical book was written centuries ago. And Calvin thinks you can understand the intention of this author from a different culture in a different part of the world centuries ago. That's astounding in light of our culture's understanding about how to read texts and whether we can plumb the intention of those ancient texts. So this is very important for Calvin. It should be for us that we respect ethically. It's an act of charity and ethics to read the scriptures correctly and understand what the author is trying to say. And then we should look to the historical horizon, even insofar as we can do that. Do not enter, verse 13 says, the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over the disaster in the day of this calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. And here the negative example is indicted of rejoicing over another's ill fortunes. This is what the Germans have one word for, but it takes us a couple sentences. It's called schadenfreude. You know, the person who cuts you off in the freeway, and then later on you're driving down, you recognize they're pulled over by the officer, and in your heart of hearts you have a little twinkle of excitement. But in this case, as Edom rejoices over Israel's misfortunes, it is abhorrent to the Lord that this should be the case. But even this, if we merely stop here, that's reductionistic. It's a thin reading of the scriptures. Because Calvin goes on to say, and we should say, that this does not limit the prophet's meaning merely to the original historic horizon. And here I must teach you and tell you about what I call the prophetic idiom. This is the way the prophets often speak about future realities. The prophets who continually talk about the maintenance of, maintenance of, the arrangements of Israel, the tribes, their land, their temple, their cultic practices, their people, their kings, are in reality talking about something else. New covenant realities to come. And therefore, we should constantly be asking the question, are those the things, the matter that the prophets referred to in their own contemporary environment? What the prophet is really saying, or really talking about, 
Or is there something deeper and more profound going on? Well, the prophetic idiom instructs us that this is how we should read the scriptures. In this manner of expression that the prophets use, the typological configuration of things of the old covenants and the old people and the old institutions, the shadows and types, to talk about new covenant realities that would come and that you are now experiencing by God's grace. Because as Peter says in his epistles, the prophets speak to you. He says that to his church. Just as I could say now in the authority of God's word, the prophets are speaking to you. This is what Paul knew well. Remember in Acts 26 when he's speaking before King Agrippa? And he says, Agrippa, you know the prophets. And he begins to argue in such a way that Agrippa himself is in fear of converting. (laughs) Because of Paul's great learning and his ability to explain clearly the prophets to Agrippa. In short, the prophetic Gideon, the prophets are often describing the new covenant in terms and circumstances and institutions of the old. In the language of prophecy, in the imagery of the prophet, the idiom they use in their descriptions is really often to betray what's coming in the age of Christ and Jesus and the blessings to all humanity. Sometimes the prophets understood this, but not always. They themselves did not even know sometimes what they were saying or describing with regards to the future realities. This is what Calvin does. Turn to verse 17, and I'll show you. This isn't pulling a rabbit out of the hat. This is showing respect towards the original author. This is ultimately about the gospel. On Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. What does Calvin say? Here the prophet promises deliverance to the Jews on the mountain. What does this mean? Even that God would restore those who might seem then to have been lost. Then Obadiah clearly promises that there would be a restoration of the church. But for Calvin, it's so easy to segue into this longer vision, this prophetic idiom, to recognize he's not just addressing the original horizon, he's also addressing future saints, and he's addressing something that God is going to do later in his kingdom in redemptive history. And thus, through analogies between their day, Obadiah's day, and Calvin's day, he makes appropriate applications to his own day in the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises, even as we, through analogies, because of our understanding of the kingdom of God, can apply it to Sterling OPC in this day and age. Verse 17, he says, And the house of Jacob shall possess his possessions, that is, whatever God has given as a heritage to the children of Abraham, he will restore to them when they return from exile. But I think, yet, the real meaning of the prophet is this. That when the children of Israel should return from exile, God would restore to them their ancient country, that they might possess whatever had been promised to their father Abraham. He means then, by their possessions, the whole land which came by lot into the possession of his chosen people, as had been promised to Abraham. 
Do you understand what he's doing? He's respecting that original audience, the church of old. But he's also doubling down and saying, the profounder freight of the figure of language here is it applies to us and the church and the new age and what the Messiah would do in the future when he comes. Therefore, a correct exposition of this original historical horizon, taking together with a fuller understanding of the kingdom of God, which we as new covenant Christians have, give way to a fuller exposition and a better understanding of the prophet's intention in the text. And this is the methodology we should apply to reading Obadiah and all the prophets. Verse 18, the house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, the house of Esau stubble, and they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. When does Calvin see this fulfilled? It was fulfilled when the Lord avenged the cruelty of Edom, Though the Jews were then in exile and could not move a finger when they were without arms, yet when they were miserable slaves, the Edomites were even then consumed. By what fire? How was this burning kindled? Why did God with so much severity punish the Edomites? Because he intended by this example to show how much he loved his church. And Calvin's very comfortable switching from that horizon of the Jewish community and presenting and demonstrating that present-day application for the church. No sooner had he done this when he's equally comfortable switching to the future horizon and following verses. Look at verses 19 and 20. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. Those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the people of Israel should possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. And here Calvin recognizes, and we should recognize, as I said earlier, the borders just listed far outstrips anything they ever knew. It's never happened. In other words, Calvin notes that this prophecy stretches beyond anything they had known previously, presently, or within the confines of their own awareness and knowledge. He says, it is certain that this prophecy has never been completed. We know that but a small portion of the land was possessed by the Jews. What then are we to understand by this prophecy? It does unquestionably appear that the prophet speaks here of the kingdom of Christ. That we know that the church was then really restored and that the Jews not only recovered their former state from which they had fallen, but that the kingdom was increased for how great became the splendor of the kingdom of the temple under Christ. This then is what the prophet really means when he promises the Jews the heritage which they had lost, yea, God then enlarged the borders of Judea. Hence, he shows that they should not only be restored to their former condition, but that the kingdom would be increased in splendor and wealth when Christ should come. The import of the whole then is 
The Jews shall not only recover that which they had lost, but what they had not hitherto been given to them to possess. All this the Lord would bestow on them when Christ came. And then the climax, verse 21. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Amply demonstrates what I've been trying to convince you up to this point. We should see this verse as clearly referring to Christ over and against the arguments of Jewish interpreters that do not want to find its landing point in Jesus. But notice in verse 21, as many recognize the language of saviors here, looks back, backwards to judges, but it also looks forward to Christ himself. So you have the introduction, you have the interpretation I've set before you in this wonderful little delightful prophet. And now the inspiration of Obadiah by way of conclusion. Often when we think and we hear the word inspiration, it denotes for us the teaching uh, that we affirm in our church that the the Bible is inspired by God's Holy Spirit as he breathes out God's word. And the Holy Spirit convinces that of us that it is God's word through his attestation. However, I mean inspiration in a different sense that this little prophet um, shows us in the shortest book of the Bible. In short, now having this exposition before you, the message of Obadiah is that people of God listen carefully. Your enemies and those that hate the church will be judged in the end. That's a hard word, but that's what Obadiah teaches us. But it also teaches us that if you are hiding in the bosom of Christ, you will escape that judgment. This is exactly what our Westminster Confession of Faith summarizes in chapter 33, section 2, when it talks about the second coming of our Lord and a future judgment. The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect. Did you hear that? When God comes back again, and that rider flanked by a whole innumerable host of angels, and from Revelation 5, 4, it also says the godly who will, will flank him as well at that time, because it will be the end of common grace. And when God comes back riding on that great white majestic war horse, for you, if you are in Christ, that'll be an act of mercy, not an act of judgment. Because where did God's act of judgment receive inexhaustible satisfaction? At the cross, for you if you're in Christ. 
The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect. Semicolon. Second most semicolon in the confession. The other one's in chapter 3. And of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. There's where the category of judgment belongs. For Christians, it's an act of mercy. For non-Christians, it's an act of judgment. Keeping with these exegetical principles, just mentioned Calvin interprets verse 21, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's as applying to Christ, his church, to the last day. Do you see the vast sweep this little short book has just put before you? (laughs) All of kingdom history, all the way up until the end of Christ's second coming. And first and foremost, he wants you to be consoled that when he comes back, because he will come, it is an act of mercy for you. And he wants you to be consoled that if you are standing for the truth and you experience the oppression of a hateful world, whether that's subtle conversation whether it's like some of the missionaries for which we've been praying who are trying to return to countries where it may mean imprisonment or martyrdom. It will not always be this way. Those who refuse to bow the knee before Christ will get their comeuppance. And God intends that to be a word of consolation to you who suffer in this present evil age. People of God, we are called to live in peaceful, neighborly love and compassion with those outside the church around us. They, too, are called to live at peace with us. However, when this does not happen, we can experience the hate of the world, especially when the culture turns bestial against the people of God. Because of our convictions, we can be considered stupid, belligerent, and even oppressive. But nevertheless, little church, be of good courage. God will right all wrongs. And the people of the old covenant experienced this hatred, and now especially so to the people of the new covenant. Nevertheless, God desires you to know his will. And he gives you these little spoiler alerts. Bad form for kids to go to movies and come home and tell their parents who haven't been able to see the movie yet, who dies in the new movie in the cinema. Spoiler alert. But you know what? This is God's way. He's telling you about the end so you might be consoled and you might be doubled down and courageous and you might persevere with godly virtue through your sufferings. You may have confidence that our king has conquered. He will conquer all his enemies in the end so that you may have the virtue of godly perseverance, which he works in us week by week, Lord's day by Lord's day. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the many manifold ways you reveal it to us, like facets on a diamond turning in the light, which refracts your beauty and color and truth. Father, we need to be reminded of these things in this present evil age. 
And Father, we pray uh, with thanksgiving that you have shed abroad in our hearts the mercy of Jesus Christ in and through his uh, gospel work, not only being the penalty payer, but the probation keeper, fulfilling all that Adam failed to do. And Father, we thank you for his perfect righteousness. We thank you also that you gift us with that righteousness when we trust in you and clothe us in it. What, what, where else would we turn? So we praise you for the work of Jesus Christ, not only that which he has done, but that which he will accomplish in the future, even in the last day. Father, as we turn to the supper now, we pray that you would indeed benefit our hearts with your grace, for we know this is a means of grace. Do this, O Lord, to glorify yourself and to strengthen your saints, we do ask in Jesus' name. Amen.